Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to episode 30 of Discovering the Old Testament. It's a little hard to believe that we've already recorded so many episodes, but I guess that's what happens when you're doing something uh, as enjoyable as this. I hope you find these podcasts equally enjoyable and informative. We started talking about the book of Isaiah last time, just to give you the gist of his teachings and theology. But it's time for a little context. We will talk a little bit about Isaiah, of course, but in order to really find the handle on what he's about, we need to have a history lesson. Don't worry, as history lessons go, this one is pretty interesting, and it concerns two major crises that both presented Israelites with an existential threat. First, let's recap. King David originally united all twelve tribes into a single kingdom, but Solomon destabilized that kingdom by some ill-advised favoritism and other bad domestic policies. In 930 BCE, under his son Rehoboam, the kingdom broke in two. When the tribes of Judah and Benjamin stayed in the southern part of the kingdom, and everyone else in the northern part. Since most of what used to be called Israel now lived in the northern kingdom, that became known as Israel, or sometimes Ephraim. And the bit that was left, including Jerusalem, became known as Judah, or sometimes the southern kingdom. So these two kingdoms existed side by side, occasionally cooperating, frequently at loggerheads. The books of Kings and Chronicles document much of their history, but does so from the perspective of whether any of the kings of either kingdom were good ones. For the record, most of them were not, at least according to Kings. One of the Bible's delicious little ironies is that the Israelites originally wanted a king in the first place to help them meet a threat to their collective safety from the Philistines. A couple of centuries after the breakup of the kingdom, give or take a decade or so, they are facing a new threat, namely an aggressive Assyrian empire that had decided to set its sights on conquests to the west, putting both kingdoms and a number of other smaller states squarely in the crosshairs. The Assyrian Empire, led from its capital city Nineveh in northern Mesopotamia, is an example of militarism and imperialism at its very worst. The national fetish was war, and they were very, very good at it. The Assyrians were callous, vicious, cruel, bloodthirsty, arrogant, and utterly ruthless, and that was if you happened to catch them on a good day. Seriously, however, they were universally hated and reviled by their vassals, and for good reason. It's not for nothing that once the Assyrian Empire went down for good, they were utterly, perhaps even willfully, forgotten. Their civilization completely vanished until it was rediscovered roughly 2,000 years later. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Western Syro-Palestine contained a number of smaller states who, at first, tried to unite in resistance to the Assyrian menace. Most of the time this turned out to be a bad idea. 
One of these attempts was around 735 BCE in what historians now call the Syro-Ephraimitic War. Pekah was the king of Israel at this time. He was a man of action, one might say, having assassinated his predecessor to seize the throne. He made an alliance with Rezin, the king of Syria, to oppose the Assyrian threat. Pekah wanted Judah to join their coalition, but Jotham, the king of Judah, didn't think much of the alliance's chances against Assyria, so he refused. Pekah was not impressed by Judah's refusal, so much so that he and his Syrian allies actually went to war against Judah to enact a regime change and put someone on the throne who would bring Judah into the alliance. This was an amazingly stupid decision from a strategic point. Israel in the north was already dealing with internal frictions and resource problems of their own. Judah's situation grew worse when King Jotham died suddenly and his son Ahaz succeeded him. Ahaz faced a daunting challenge. Not only was he up against a hostile invader, the Edomites in the south and the Philistines in the west took advantage of the chaos to strengthen their own positions at Judah's expense by raiding and grabbing smaller chunks of territory. Edom and Philistia were, of course, old enemies of Judah. This was a chance for them to enrich themselves and settle some old scores. Pekah's forces eventually laid siege to Jerusalem itself. The biblical record becomes a bit fuzzy at this point. Chronicles claims that the city was looted and many of its citizens were killed. Kings implies that Pekah's siege failed, and since Ahaz was still king of Judah when the dust settles, that is probably a more accurate account. Through all of this, Ahaz was in a difficult position. Common political sense argued that he should appeal to Assyria for assistance, but not everyone liked this idea, including Isaiah. Much of the early chapters are set in the context of this debate. Should Judah make common cause with Assyria against the Syro-Ephraimitic army or not? Isaiah was absolutely against it. However, Ahaz made the call and asked for help from Nineveh. With an open invitation to come in and kill people, the Assyrians obliged. Not that they felt they needed such an invitation. One by one, they began dealing with each rebel nation. The Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, who was one of Assyria's more prolific conquerors, decimated the Philistine territories, which also cut off any aid that might come from Egypt. A year later, much of Israel and the surrounding area had fallen to Tiglath-Pileser, at which point Pekah was assassinated by Hoshea, who became king in his stead. It's likely that Hoshea took this drastic step to try to change Israel's policy with respect to Assyria. If so, it was too little, too late. The following year, the capital of Israel, Samaria, fell, and the Syrian kingdom was likewise ravaged. While the Assyrians broke the back of the Syro-Ephraimitic coalition, and smacked around the smaller kingdoms like Edom, who also threatened Judah, this relief for Judah came at a very high cost. 
Besides the fact that Ahaz had at least politically given permission for the Assyrian meat grinder to destroy Judah's fellow Israelites to the north, Assyria was hardly kind to their new vassal. They supported Ahaz by doing him the favor of not annihilating him and his country, what was left of it. Tiglath-Pileser also demanded excessively high tribute, something confirmed by Assyrian records that mention Ahaz by name as a tributary to Assyria. Ahaz had to plunder the Temple of Solomon itself in order to meet his tributary obligations. And what of the northern kingdom? Assyria had ways of dealing with rebellious populations. They were, one might say, pioneers in an early form of ethnic cleansing through their policy of displacing entire populations from their homelands. The ten tribes that made up the kingdom of Israel were forcibly relocated northwards and vanished from history, thus becoming the proverbial lost ten tribes. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Isaiah mourned the loss of so many of Israel's people. In the wake of disaster there are always attempts to explain why it had all gone so wrong, and this was no exception. The author of Chronicles, for instance, lays the blame on Ahaz for his wickedness. Chronicles in general was of the view that Israel's problems grew out of incorrect and improper worship. But Isaiah implicitly rejects this idea. He claims that it was both a failure of the royal court to trust in God and the failure of the elite to care for the poor and the vulnerable. crisis also involves Assyria and Assyrian aggression, but this time Judah had to face it all by herself. With the loss of her fellow Israelite tribes still pretty fresh in the national memory. Still, it seems that the idea of rebelling against the Assyrian military machine had not quite been purged from the Judean consciousness. The son of Ahaz, Hezekiah, had previously ruled alongside his father as co-regent, but in 715 BCE Ahaz died, leaving Hezekiah as the sole ruler of Judah. Right away he began initiating anti-Assyrian policies that put him at odds with Nineveh, and eventually these conflicts came to a head. Incidentally, Assyria's primary rival in the region was Egypt, who became very adept at fomenting rebellion in Assyria's extremities, promising help, but then somehow failing to deliver and leaving their proxies to pay the consequences. The Egyptians had been working on Hezekiah and encouraging him to push back against his Assyrian overlords. In 701, the Assyrians stabbed into Judah reducing and taking dozens of fortified cities, including the major fortress of the city of Lachish. This fight was so fierce that the king of Assyria at the time, Sennacherib, made it the subject of an extensive set of relief carvings that decorated his throne room. These reliefs provide a lot of information about the siege and fall of the city. With the loss of Lachish, and no help coming from Egypt, 
Hezekiah realized that he was in deep, deep trouble, and sent a mea culpa letter to Sennacherib, offering to pay tribute in exchange for cessation of hostilities. But Sennacherib wasn't impressed. He sent his army north to encircle Jerusalem. Hezekiah had not been idle. It seems that he anticipated that Sennacherib would not be satisfied until he had attacked Jerusalem. So Hezekiah had been busy making preparations for a siege, some of which are still visible today. One of these is Hezekiah's Tunnel, which was a remarkable underground aqueduct that brought water from the Gihon Spring outside the city wall to the Pool of Siloam inside Jerusalem. 533 meters long, it was made by two teams of diggers working their way through mostly solid rock towards each other, directed partly from above and partly by each team listening for the sounds of digging made by their counterparts. Today, visitors to Jerusalem can still walk, well, wade, actually, through the length of Hezekiah's tunnel, which still carries water to the pool of Siloam. Sennacherib, meanwhile, had sent his commanders with a large army to confront Jerusalem, and Hezekiah in particular. When they arrived, they had this to say to Hezekiah, found in Second Kings 18, verses 19 and following. Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you base this confidence of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? On whom do you rely, that you have rebelled against me? See, you are relying now on Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. Later in chapter 19, Sennacherib, via his messengers, reiterates this and other points. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah of Judah. Do not let your God, on whom you rely, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. See, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the land, destroying them utterly. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my predecessors destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? The word sunk home. Hezekiah was deeply distraught. If the Assyrians prevailed, the best that he could hope for was to become a lowly officer in the Assyrian army. More likely was the fate of being impaled alive on a stake outside the walls of his own city. Praying for guidance, Hezekiah also sent servants to consult the prophet Isaiah, who, as before, had opposed seeking outside help and instead insisted on trusting in God alone. He had his own words for Sennacherib, a wonderful example of Iron Age trash-talking. Have you not heard that I, God, determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded. They have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. 
But I know your rising and your sitting, your going out and your coming in, and your raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your arrogance has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will turn you back on the way by which you came. It's not known whether Isaiah's message comparing the king of Assyria to a riding animal was ever delivered. What is, what is interesting is that when the inevitable siege came, the Bible records that God killed a vast portion of the Assyrian army, forcing them to abandon the siege. What is at least as interesting is that in 1830, archaeologists digging in Nineveh discovered a large clay hexagonal prism covered with Neo-Assyrian cuneiform writing that turned out to contain accounts of Sennacherib's campaigns, including his siege of Jerusalem. The artifact is called the Taylor Prism, after Colonel R. Taylor, the British Consul General at Baghdad. The Taylor Prism is now on display in the British Museum, after they purchased it from Taylor's widow in 1855. The Assyrian account pushes the usual propaganda of the Assyrians as stupendous badasses, but the record is as fascinating for what it doesn't say as for what it does. Quote, as for Hezekiah, the Judahite, who did not submit to my yoke, forty-six of his strong walled cities, as well as the smaller towns in their area, which were without number, by leveling with battering rams, and by bringing up siege engines, and by attacking and storming on foot, by mines, tunnels, and breaches, I besieged and took them. Two hundred thousand one hundred fifty people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, asses, camels, cattle, and sheep without number, I brought away from them and counted as spoil. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities, which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land. To the Mitini, king of Ashdod, Padi, king of Ekron, and Silibel, king of Gaza, I gave them, and thus I diminished his land. I added to the former tribute, and I laid upon him the surrender of their lands and imposts, gifts for my majesty. As for Hezekiah, the terrifying splendor of my majesty overcame him and the Arabs and his mercenary troops which he had brought in to strengthen Jerusalem, his royal city, deserted him. Now, if you were paying close attention through all that, you will have noticed that Sennacherib does not claim that he actually took Jerusalem, only that he besieged it, cut off and took the surrounding area, and jacked up the tribute on Hezekiah. So there might be something to the idea that Sennacherib couldn't finish off Jerusalem as he intended. As we mentioned before, it was in the context of this terrible war that Isaiah wrote his famous words about beating swords into plowshares. And while, in retrospect, it is tempting to fault Hezekiah for not listening to Isaiah's insistence that he trust in God, one must also recognize that Hezekiah and his people did not, could not, know how it would end. 
they had to deal with a very unforgiving world and stand in the face of an implacable enemy. It is within this tension, created largely by these two crises, the Syro-Ephraimitic War and the Siege of Jerusalem under Sennacherib, that Isaiah wrote his impassioned and profound message in which God desired a more just and peaceful world for all nations. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.